<coughs> reading from Colossians 2. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those in Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So then, just as you see, receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen, they are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Thanks be to God. When we look at the letters of Paul, we have to start with the late great liberal theologian Marcus Borg, collaborating with Dominic Crossman in their book, The First Paul, when they say, we've got Paul all wrong. They argue that there are actually three Pauls. The first Paul is the historical Paul. So he was born around 4 BC, possibly a year or two earlier. He was a young man living robustly. He was feisty. He was always getting into fights and causing trouble. Uh, we think he was near enough a contemporary of Jesus's, that maybe a year or two apart in age, even if their backgrounds were pretty different. So there was no written gospel in Paul's lifetime. The first gospel, Mark, was written around 70 AD. So Paul's genuine letters, written at least 20 years earlier, are the first written accounts of Jesus's life in the New Testament. They're the closest thing we have to a contemporary account. Mainstream scholarship over the last couple of hundred years has concluded that the 13 letters attributed to Paul fall into three categories. Those written by Paul, those not written by him, and those they're pretty sceptical about but can't pin down for sure. At least seven of these letters are genuinely written by him, Paul himself. So they're Romans, Corinthians 1 and 2, and four of the shorter ones. Theologians, uh, Galatians, Philippians, and Philemon. They are the real deal. According to equally strong consensus, 
there are three letters definitely not written by Paul. So Timothy 1 and 2 and Titus. These were written about 50 years later. The style of the writing is totally different to Paul and there's historical detail in them that just wasn't of his time. These letters were written in Paul's name but not by him. It's not a fraud, it was common to do this at the time. It was a literary convention. The third group is the one we can't be sure about, but there's consensus that we can't agree about them. This group includes Ephesians, Second Theologians, and our reading today, Colossians. Marcus Borg sees these letters as written after those first ones, but before the ones that we know are definitely not by him. So Borg gives names to these Pauls. The first Paul, the actual Paul, is the radical Paul. The second Paul is the reactionary Paul. So these don't develop his message. They actually counter it on important points. And then the third Paul is the conservative Paul. Essentially what happens is there's a taming of the radical firebrand Paul, a domestication of his passion to the normality of the Roman imperial world his followers lived in. They watered him down. They tweaked what he said, and they tried to make him a little less fierce. So, for example, the Paul in Romans 16, he's pretty feminist. He sends Phoebe, a woman deacon, to deliver his letter. She's a woman delivering a letter to quite a lot of illiterate people. She's a preacher. She's a woman preacher. That's the radical Paul. Then there's the conservative Paul later on. He says... Wives, submit to your husbands. It's not the real Paul. And then the reactionary Paul says, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. And that is how a radical pro-woman, pro-equality, radical egalitarian, proto-communist like Paul ends up being the hero of the conservative right. Don't think it doesn't happen today either. Last week I was reading research which showed the actual word homosexual wasn't used in the Bible until 1945. All those passages used to clobber gay couples. The original language is far closer to talking about child abusers. It was American conservative churches after the war who started to push new translations. They subsume further Paul's radicalism. There's a school of thought that says all religious movements are radical insurgencies to begin with. They rise up against the power structures of the day, challenging them. Then they either get crushed or they change the status quo, at least for a time. More often than not, they end up being subsumed back into the power structures of the day, an uprising against the Roman Empire becomes the official religion of the Roman Empire. But is it still the same set of ideas? Methodism was an insurgency when it started. John Wesley and all those early Methodists rejected the Church of England's stiff thinking. They took their preaching out onto the streets, into cattle markets, into the great mills of the Industrial Revolution into the fields and into the slums. 
They said you don't need stained glass or incense to hear the word of God. And they got a lot of grief for it. They nearly lynched Wesley a few times. And if you read a bit about the history of Methodism in Canterbury, they were nearly burnt to death in their own church by locals. Methodism was as radical in its birth as Paul was in his. And now, just as a later generation tries to edit Paul into submission, we've got the Church of England trying to reassimilate Methodism. What would Paul make of this? We live in a city where the cathedral owns lots of the shop spaces. They're charging people £6,000 a month to rent a space near Pork and Co. Next time you're wondering about the empty shops on the high street, remember that. Are they the radical Paul or the conservative Paul? Are they helping people around here? Or are they too busy revamping their gift shop? Something to think about next time we're up at the cathedral doing carols. So with all that in mind to our reading today, we've been told to preach on this because it's Bible month and all the churches are meant to be working through it this week. The city of Colossae was one of the small trading cities in modern-day Turkey, not like the big, bright light-filled cities like Corinth or Ephesus, but much more provincial, like most of the cities in the Roman Empire. People who lived there were mainly poor, scraping a living from trade or low-level entry jobs in in industry, and they were living jam-packed with lots of people huddled together into big buildings. So I imagine it's a bit like those places down on the coast, down the road in Thanet, those bits of sort of Margate or Dover, where Weatherspoons is full at half past eight in the morning. By the time of the New Testament, cities like Colossae had undergone a lot of immigration, bringing them a diverse range of religions and cultures, turning them into a massive melting pot. The old religions of these cities would have been like the one where they worshipped the fertility goddess Sybil. They were secretive, they were cult-like. There were all sorts of faiths and ideas swilling around. There was a theatre in the city, a marketplace, a massive Jewish community. Uh, I think Cicero mentions around 10,000 Jewish people living there at the time. So Paul's right into a place not actually that different to modern-day Britain in some ways. Big changes were occurring in society. So this letter our reading is simple enough. It is to say this, though there are all sorts of new ideas knocking around, all sorts of tempting theories and theologies, you shouldn't worry about them. Your identity is that you're a Christian. Never mind what you think about leaving the EU or remaining. Never mind if you're red or blue. Never mind what sort of person you fancy or what sort of logo you've got on your sports clothes. You are a Christian above and beyond all tribes and all identities. Even if the author of the letter is far away from the community he writes to, they're still part of the same church. Even if you're on the other side of the world, far, far away from here, listening to an MP3 file of this sermon, you're still part of the church. Don't feel alone, because we are all brothers and sisters in Christ. And I say, you know that Christ preached of love for the meek and the poor and the dispossessed? Paul is often used to set against that idea. Don't believe a word of it. He was as radical as Christ was, 
and at the heart of their radicalism was pure, unrelenting, defiant love. Love, not power. They're not interested in controlling people. They want to save people from pain and loneliness and hardship. Now, I know some of you are probably a bit fed up with all the pro-gay stuff we've been doing. For some, it feels a bit uncomfortable. For others, it feels like we're harping on about the same thing over and over again when we could be talking about other more important stuff. I get it. But ask yourself, Paul and Jesus were living with those people shunned and ostracised by society. What would they do if they were here today and sat next to a very nervous and shy person identifying as trans? Our society may be changing. New things seem to be popping up all the time. And it can be hard to keep up. But Jesus would embrace those very people that make others uncomfortable. If you are serious about being a Christian, you need to listen to the word of God when he tells you to love everyone. So this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.